0: So Palm Sunday, looking at triumphal entry. So last week we looked at chapter 12. You remember the one, if you uh, had the like um, tapes, like movie tapes, you remember the VCRs and then you had like the extra contraption that you had to pull out and then you put the VHS tape in and it like rewound it for you at extra lightning speed. Well, we're gonna use that and go back a chapter. All right, so we're in chapter 12. We're going back to chapter 11 tonight. And I think this is just a very interesting story For maybe nothing else, or at at the very minimum, um, because we have this minor obsession with royalty. Um, If you don't believe me, there was an article that came out from CNN last year. You can see the the front page of it here. Uh, It was about a year ago, right around the time when Oprah did her interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And so this came out right after that. And it just kind of dives into America's obsession with royalty. Since we don't have our own, the article makes this argument that we go and we try to make our own dynasties, we try to make our own royalty, but they dive into just sort of the intrigue when it comes to our own interests in the royalty. And here's some of the facts that they threw down in there. So that it noted that 17 million people watched that interview from the United States of Oprah with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, if that's not enough for you, in 2018 for their marriage, 29 million people in the United States woke up early so that they could watch these two get married. And then if you take the, all of this into account with things that like shows and movies that have come out, things like The Crown on Netflix or when it comes to King's speech, like these are big stories that we have made these really big deals, these really big issues in common day society. They're things that we throw up on our screen and we watch on a regular basis. Whenever they pop up in the ads, they, they grab our interest because we have this unique interest in these things. So even more intriguing though, beyond just like this natural curiosity that we have for royalty, I believe this passage gives us insight into the kind of king that Jesus really is. And so, with all this intrigue, here's sort of what I want to do tonight, all right? I want to look through this passage twice. <laughs> a little ambitious, all right? But I want to look through this whole entire uh, story twice with different lenses, all right? So, you remember the old 3D glasses? You remember these bad boys? Um, so, here's what, like, the whole thing does. So, if you put, a, put these bad boys on, and you close one eye, and you look out through it, everything's blue, Right? You close that eye and you look through the other one, everything's red. And it's not until you open both eyes and the movie comes up on the screen that you can really see the picture clearly, or at least kind of, because these were kind of not very good, you know what I'm saying? But roll with me. So here's what I want to do. I kind of want to walk through this passage where in one instance, we're kind of looking through it with the blue lens, because there's something that I think that Mark's trying to really draw out here. And then I want us to close that eye and then look through it with the red lens because I think there's another thing that he's trying to draw out and then at the very end we'll open up both eyes to try to really see who this King Jesus is that I believe Mark is trying to put on full display for us, all right? So the first time through, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look through the first time so if you're thinking like blue lens, the first time that we're going to look through, I want us to look at the majesty of Jesus. I believe Mark is drawing out this majesty of Jesus, who Jesus is that he wants us to see in his triumphal entry. And then we'll close that eye and we'll open the red lens eye and we'll look through this passage for a second time and we'll look at the meekness of Jesus, the lowliness and the humility of Jesus. And then after that, we'll open both eyes. And I believe after we look through both of these lenses and we see the majesty and meekness of Jesus that we really get the full picture of the kind of king. That Jesus is so. Here's here's how we're gonna do this, all right? So I have three C's that we're gonna look through the lens, both lenses, all right? So three C's. I wouldn't be a Baptist preacher if it wasn't if I didn't have alliteration here. So the first, here's the three C's. All right, we're gonna look at the command of Jesus. We're gonna look at the cult of Jesus, and we're gonna look at the celebration of the crowds for Jesus. And so as we do this, we're gonna work through, and we're gonna look at the majesty meekness through these three C's, all right? So first, the majesty. Now, whenever I say majesty, I'm trying to speak of the things that you just commonly associate with a king, all right? So whenever you're thinking about the claim of a king, the authority, as well as the lure of the king, I want us to look through the very first time that we go through the story and try to find these things, the lure and the authority of Jesus, In these three C's as we look at the majesty of Jesus. So first, consider with me the command that Jesus exudes in this story. All right, so here's what happens. Jesus and his disciples, they approach Jerusalem. They've been on their way to Jerusalem for at least a couple of chapters at this point. And as they come up, they're coming up through Bethany, which is sort of the suburb of Jerusalem. And they're also coming through the Mount of Olives, which is sort of packed with a lot of significance and meeting for the people of God. Bethany is sort of this place that Mark is identifying that Jesus and his disciples are going to view as a place for lodging. So some of his closest friends, Jesus' closest friends in this world, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they live in Bethany, and so Jesus is gonna stay with them during this week, and so as they approach the city, Jesus sends two of his disciples out to go find a cult for him to ride into the city. Now, we don't know which disciples these two are, but we know that Jesus sends them out, and it's in this activity that we see Jesus' command of the entire situation, of the whole entire triumphal entry. Here's what verses two through three say. Go into the village ahead of you, And as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. All right. So we see Jesus' command here of the entire situation in a couple of ways. So the first one is this, that Jesus knows the colt's status. All right. So it's not astonishing that Jesus notices a cult as he's coming into Jerusalem. So many have traveled for the Passover. Passover is this week-long celebration amongst God's people where they're looking back at their history. Whenever God liberated them from Egypt, he parted the Red Sea. He had all of the different plagues that happened, all the liberation that God did. They look back on this time over the week of Passover and they celebrate The hand of God on his people throughout their history. And so many people have traveled from all over the world to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this particular week. And as people travel from all of the world, one of the primary means of transportation is animals. And so if you're thinking about all these people that are coming from all over the place to Jerusalem for this massive week of the Passover, there's no like little chance, there's no, it's not like a low probability that you're going to run into a bunch of animals, extra animals that are in this city during this point in time. And the, the likelihood is that this city triples in size for this week because of the amount of people that come in. And so what you find here is not this this aberration, whenever it comes to identifying an animal, but here's what stands out. Here's what's so unique about this is Jesus knows the exact whereabouts of this particular cult, and he knows the status that it has never been ridden before. So as you're wrestling with this, and you're thinking about this, it should just strike you. just the command that Jesus has of this entire situation. I mean, Jesus is foretelling. He's foreseeing the events before they even happen here. Shouldn't be, the disciples, like, yeah, of course, you, you, you know cult, you know these animals that are here, of course, Jesus, but that Jesus knows the exact whereabouts of this particular cult, as well as that it has never been ridden before is something that should stun us and likely stun his disciples too. With all that they've seen Jesus do up to this point, We have not seen them at any point in time where they're like, man, I just thought this, I finally figured Jesus out. I know everything that Jesus is gonna do. Every single time Jesus does something that's somewhat miraculous, they're always taken aback by it. And so this shouldn't be any different either. What's also stunning too is that Jesus predicts the question and response of the owners as he sends his disciples to go and get the colt and untie the colt and bring the colt back to him. This is exactly what happens as Jesus foretells it. He sends his two disciples, they go to the owners, they untie the donkey and as the donkey's being untied, here's what happens in verses four through six. So they went, they found a colt outside the street, tied by a door, they untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Like, basically, what do you think you're doing? This is my cult. Like, get away from my cult. And here's what the disciples, the disciples follow what Jesus said. They answered them just as Jesus had said. And then look, they let them go. This is not a matter of luck. This isn't Jesus being babe Ruth holding up his bat and pointing into the out to the outfield. This, is, this isn't like Jesus just saying, I'm gonna like stand on my own two feet and just out of the mere hope of luck that I'm gonna call my shot. No. He's saying, I, I know exactly what's happening here. Jesus is in full control of everything that's taking place before his triumphal entry. We we should step back and realize just the command that Jesus has, not just of this situation, but of his whole entire life and ministry. This is just a, short, a small snapshot of the, all the things that have been taking place throughout Jesus's life and ministry. Just as an earthly king has command of the entire situation before his armies and his own people, we see the same thing happening here with Jesus, except Jesus goes beyond this because he knows that things are gonna happen before it even happens. Jesus displays more than just a royal power. He displays a cosmic power here a power that nobody else has displayed before Jesus comes to this world. He's completely in command of everything. So we see the majesty of Jesus that just as like an earthly king has command of everything that's going on in an entire situation, Jesus exudes this, but even more so because he can see things before they even happen. He's in complete control. And then secondly, you see the details behind the cult themselves that should also kind of stun us. So here's what happens. The two disciples, they find the cult where Jesus said it would be. They untie the cult as they, the owners say, hey, what, what the heck are you doing? Uh, they, they follow through just as Jesus told them to. And so they bring the cult back at the owners, Okay. They bring the colt to Jesus for him to ride into Jerusalem. And here's what verse 7 says. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Now, there's a few things for us to just stop and note here, all right? So the first one is this. Something that should stand out to us is that over all of Jesus' life and ministry, we don't see him at one point in time hop on an animal for his transportation. The only thing that he has hopped on to this point is a boat where we also saw his power on full display. So it's almost as Jesus has been saved. Like, it's not abnormal for someone to ride an animal. Like, this is the primary. It's like you and me jumping in a car. Like, everybody had an animal that they rode around. That's how they got to places, especially if you're traveling long distances, but not Jesus. It's like he's been saving this moment his whole entire life for this one particular instance. And then secondly, as we saw in the previous section, the colt has never been ridden. Now, this is something that, like, in historic times is very fitting for a king. An animal is a very sacred thing for these people. And so that this donkey has never been ridden on before is fitting for a sacred king such as Jesus. But more than that, riding a donkey into Jerusalem carries significant implications for the people of God. So other kings have memorably ridden on a donkey into Jerusalem for their inauguration. So if, if you are an Israelite at this point in time, your mind is being jogged back to people like King Solomon. The most wise king in Israel's history in his inauguration, he jumps on a colt and he rides into Jerusalem for his inauguration. See the same thing with a, a king like Jehu, where people also come and they lay down palm branches. You see some of the similar pomp and pageantry that happens around all of this. This is what is probably being recollected in the minds of the people that see Jesus doing this. But there's also prophetic connotations with Jesus doing this. So a passage that probably every person that is there, if you grew up a devout Israelite, you probably knew this passage. So Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look at this. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So look, all of this seems timely and purposeful on Jesus's account. This is not just mere coincidence. It's not just something that Jesus is like, you know what? I, I, I've To this point in time, I've been alive for over 30 years. It's probably time that I jump on a colt and ride a colt into Jerusalem. Like that's not what's happening here. Jesus is very timely. He's very purposeful with everything that he's doing here. He's not only command in all the situation, he's also embracing everything that comes with the connotations, the implications of jumping on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem on the week of Passover. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what this is going to cause inside of people whenever they see him jump on a donkey and ride into the city of Jerusalem, especially with everything that he's done up to this point in time. With all of the power and all of the healing and all of the authority in his teaching, with everything that he's done, he knows that whenever he does this, everything that's going to pop up into people's minds. So at this point in time, up to this point, everything that Jesus has done—whenever He's healed people, what we've seen on a regular basis—he tells them not to go and tell anybody. It's like He's been trying trying to bottle up all the uh, the celebration that would come towards Jesus for a particular time in a particular place, and it seems like Jesus is letting it out of the cage here. Jesus, He knows Zechariah nine nine. He knows the imagery of these previous kings. And it's as if Jesus is saying, it's time to fully embrace me. What I've been trying to tell you to bottle up and not to spread amongst other towns and other peoples, it's time for it to be said. I'm the king that you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting so anticipating for hundreds of thousands of years. The time has come. The praise and the acclaim that I've told people to contain, don't contain it any longer. It's here. It's time to let it out of its cage, which is exactly what we see happen in the following verses. So as we read in verse seven, the disciples, they placed their coats on the animal as a saddle for Jesus. No royal person is to ride on an animal without a saddle. And so just the disciples with Jesus embracing the whole entire scene. They throw their coats on top of the donkey for Jesus to ride. And we, in verse eight, we see the crowds follow in suit. Here's what it says. Many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem, people are laying down their coats and they're spreading palm branches before him. So all of this, is just an ancient way for a city to welcome in their king. It's as if the people are seeing Jesus and what he's doing and he's hopping on the colt and he's riding into the city, they're laying down their coats, they're laying down their palm branches because it's as if they're saying, the road that you're about to go through, it's it's so unworthy of such a lofty king as you and so we, we're in, in some sense trying to lay down the red carpet for you as you enter into our city. In another way, they're also saying, everything that I have is yours. All that I own, all that I am, I'm yours. And as if this were not enough, Mark reports that the crowds, they break out in song. In verses nine through 10, here's what it says. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So this is a lyric from Psalm 118, a Psalm God's people use often to celebrate his plans. And so Hosanna is this transliterated Hebrew word that literally means save, I pray. And so these people, they see Jesus, he hops on the cult. they know the kingdom aspirations, they know the Messiah connotations of what's taking place here. They recognize this, they throw their coats, they throw down palm branches, they're laying down the red carpet for Jesus, and they're singing over him, there's this pageantry that's happening, and they're essentially saying, save us, we pray that you would finally save us. The one that they sing about is obviously sent from God himself, as we see, comes in the name of the Lord. And this coming king will reestablish in their minds the kingdom of David, the long foretold authority and power that Israel once held under King David. In verse 10, they're singing these praises over Jesus. And so it's not only a celebration, but it's a desperate plea from these people. In one hand, you see excitement before them. In the other, you see a sense of desperation. Like, is this finally it? Is this finally the time? All of these foretold promises to our forefathers, starting from Abraham all the way up until this point in time, with all of the prophecy that has happened, do we finally get to see it? This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the one that's gonna save us. And so Jesus, in the midst of all this, he shows his command. He shows all that he's willing to embrace all of the connotations. He's embracing the celebration. And what, what we have to realize here is that the audience that the gospel of Mark is written towards is for believers in Rome at this point in time. So Mark is trying to compact, to compile all these stories of Jesus for these people that have heard about Jesus, but they don't know the intricate details of his life and his ministry. And so he's Pieced all these things together, and so as they see the scene, as they read the scene, it's likely that these readers, their minds are being reminded of the times that they've seen Caesar himself ride into the city of Rome with all the pomp and all the pageantry, and they I, this is like a common scene that they have heard that they've seen, and Caesar would have been met with all the same things that we see here that Jesus is met with—that he rides into the city on his steed, that he's met by the crowds, that he's celebrated for his accomplishments that he's admired for his by his people he's worshiped with songs as he comes back into the city victorious all of this majesty all of this admiration all of this worship it's as if mark is saying to his readers in rome jesus is worthy of this all because he's the majestic king Everything that you associate with a Caesar, Jesus is just as worthy, if not more worthy than any other king that you've ever seen in the history of this world. Jesus is worthy of it all. At the same time, Mark's readers would read the scene and they would also notice some differences too they would catch what Mark is doing, but they would likely look at the details here and be like, yeah, we see the command. We see the steed. We see the celebration. We see everything that is kind of being worked towards here, but it just doesn't quite reach maybe what we've seen when we have watched Caesar himself come into the city of Rome victorious, what they would identify is that there's a sense of meekness here that you also see in this story. Mark is portraying the majesty of Jesus, yes, but if we go back through this scene again and look at some of the other details that are going on here, you're also gonna see the lowliness, the humility, and the meekness of Jesus is king. So let's walk back through. That's the first run through. Let's go back through a second time. We'll look through our, our three C's again. So look with me again at the command of Jesus here, okay? As you recall, Jesus approaches Jerusalem with his disciples and foretells the occurrence of the cult. And so Jesus sends two disciples to retie- retrieve the cult for him to ride into to Jerusalem. Jesus knows the cult's whereabouts. He knows the status of the cult. He foretells everything that's going to happen. And Jesus was in full control of all the te- details of his entry into Jerusalem. Absolutely. Now, we could read this story with like a sense of sadness or even like a, oh, poor Jesus kind of mentality here, because you could read it as if Jesus is this unknowing victim as he's walking into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus thought he was riding into the city to take his rightful place as king. The crowds were excited about Jesus and celebrating his arrival. But in less than a week, everyone and everything completely turns on him. So you can look at this and be like, man, Jesus just didn't see it coming. He's embracing all these realities. Like he's just stepping into it. And then the very next week, he's gone. Everybody turns on him. However, in light of Jesus' foreknowledge that we saw the complete command that Jesus has of the entire scene, we can't look at his command in this particular way. You can't look at him as an unknowing victim because with the command Jesus exudes here in this passage, we can't assume that there's an ignorance that's going on inside of Jesus for what is to come. I mean, think about the stories that have led up to this. In the previous chapters, Jesus has identified on three separate occasions to his disciples that he 's going to Jerusalem in order to die and in the third instance, you get this gruesome details about what this coming crucifixion is going to look like for Jesus, that people are going to spit on him that people are going to spit on that people are going to spit on they 're going to beat him he 's going to be crowned with a crown of thorns that he 's going to be betrayed that he 's going to be Brutally crucified before Jesus has laid out all of this for his disciples. And just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the passage where Jesus said, I laid down my life as a ransom for many. And look, for Jesus to do this, it's he displays such command. He knows full well what's coming to him. But in order for him to step into this, to walk into the city on the week of the Passover, to be celebrated as he is, to have people sing over him, to just adore him with all the things, the lavishings that they have done for him to come in, knowing what is coming his way in just seven days, it requires otherworldly humility and meekness. for any single one of us to ride into such a city where we see everybody worshiping us as we come in, knowing that in just seven days, they're all gonna turn on us and they want the worst that could possibly happen to a human being physically in every single way. And not to come in with just this harshness of looking down on people, a cold shoulder. You don't get any of that from Jesus because you see him in his complete meekness. He possesses a lowliness, a humility, that only a king like Jesus could walk into the scenario that he walks into and still be willing to do what he goes and he does for these people seven days later. So not only is Jesus majestic, he's also very meek. We see this in his command. You also see this with the details of the cult. So with the details of the cult, we see two things simultaneously happen. Jesus both embraces the implications of riding the cult like we just talked about. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He looks at all of these prophecies and he knows that he's the fulfillment of them. But at the same time, we also see a demonstration of loneliness that takes place here. So just consider the difference between a donkey and a war horse. All right, I got a picture up here for, for you. Anybody, gladiator fans? Yeah, yeah. So you have the gladiator, you know the opening scene that he goes in, he's on his steed and you know the accomplishments of the Roman people. You have these big, bad, brutal warriors that go into the battlefields. And so you have these, these horses that are big in power They have all these major accomplishments as you ride into a city, Caesar riding in on his war horse, his steed. There's majesty and there's beauty to this war horse as it comes in. Like there's a domineering like kind of mentality for this horse as the Caesar comes into the city on his war horse. But what do we have Jesus coming in? He comes on a colt of a donkey. So step back and think about the people that Mark is riding to here. They see war horse in their minds with Caesar coming in, but you have Jesus riding on a colt as he comes into the city of Jerusalem. The, the thing that kind of sparked my mind is if you've watched the uh, Sherlock Holmes, the second movie, Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr., he, he's a terrified of riding a horse as they go through the horseback. And so what does he get on? He gets on a donkey. And it's as if they're just making fun of him throughout the whole entire movie for about like five minutes because he's riding on this donkey and they're just showing him riding through all these different scenes. This small little animal that's fit for a child at a carnival, at a ride, is what Jesus hops on as he rides into the city of Jerusalem for him to be received as Israel's long-awaited king. Majesty, yes, but also a meekness. They would look at Jesus as he rides in on a donkey. The portrayal of, them, of Jesus riding in on a donkey, there's nothing impressive about it. Nothing. Low, humble, and meek is what would go through their minds. See, a king's steed is a symbol of his power and to the watching world, as they look at Jesus, it's like, why should we follow this guy? What type of power does he possess? How is he going to provide a sense of protection for us as a people? Why? Why follow a king that rides in on a donkey? He's lowly, he's humble, he's weak, and Jesus embraces it all. It's as if Jesus is saying, I may not be the king that you've been looking for, but I am the king that you need. And then lastly, Consider the celebration around Jesus. The crowds lay down their coats and palm branches, singing of the deliverance that's to come through Jesus. Hosanna, save us, we pray. Deliver us from Rome. Liberate us from our oppressors. Make us the powerful ones again. And while Jesus is majestic, we also see in his celebration that he's meek. See, Jesus is bringing a deliverance, but it's not the one that they anticipated. Jesus is saying in in essence during his celebration as they're singing Hosanna over him, he's saying, you're right, you do need a deliverance and you need to get more personal though than what you have in your minds. Jesus in some ways saying, you need to get actually more narrow than what you're thinking. You're thinking the borders of Israel, but Jesus is saying, I'm thinking about the confines of your heart. Jesus is saying, yes, you are dealing with an oppression and you think that your largest oppression right now is a Caesar in Rome, but what I'm telling you is your largest oppression is the sin issue that's going on inside of you. The people are crying out, our country is in danger, but Jesus is looking at them as they're singing Hosanna over him and they're, he knows exactly what's going on inside of their minds. They're thinking about Jesus taking the throne and this military power and might that's gonna come from him, liberate them from the confines of Rome. But Jesus, in the midst of them singing and knowing exactly what they're thinking through, he looks at them and says, your eternity is in danger and it's not your country that I'm so worried about. see, almost immediately, the crowds don't grasp the full reality of what's going on and the type of king that Jesus is. In verse 11, the whole entire scene just ends anticlimactically. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Y'all, look, this is the Messiah that they've been waiting for for so long, This is the king that they finally think is going to bring liberation. So too late for who? I know football coaches that have come in after midnight and they've had thousands of people that showed up for their college team and they're rejoicing and they're just staying up late and they're throwing massive parties for a stupid ball coach that's come into their college team. Too late for who? They don't get it. So Jesus leaves, he goes back out to Bethany where he stays. It's as if Mark is saying, open your eyes. See the full picture. Look at what type of king Jesus is. And here's what he's trying to say. Jesus is the servant king. Now look, Majesty, we get when it comes to royalty, right? It's one of the things that allures us to, like, the interviews that happen with Oprah, with Prince Harry, Meghan Markle. Like, there's this allure, this royal power, there's this majesty that sucks us in. But why make such a big deal about the meekness of Jesus? I think there's a number of reasons, but here's the one I want us to wrestle with tonight. I think it's because of his approachability. I think Mark wants us to get that Jesus is, yes, majestic, but he's also the servant king who's meek. And here's why I think he wants you to understand that, because he's wanting you to see that it doesn't matter what walk of life you've come from, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you have, it doesn't matter what skin color you have, it doesn't matter your history, it doesn't matter if you've been an obedient person or if you've been a disobedient person, every single person with Jesus spending most of his time with sinners and tax collectors and the marginalized and the diseased, all the people that are on the margins of this world, I think it's as if Mark is trying to say, look, this is the servant king that is approachable by everybody. When a Caesar hops on his war horse and comes into Rome, it's not the peasants that feel that it can come up and talk to Caesar. It's only the elite, the people that are in his closest confined circles the people that he calls on by name to come into his royal chambers, those are the people that can come and speak with a Caesar. I think Mark is trying to get across for us though the meekness of Jesus because he's saying, look, this king is for you. He's ready to meet with you. He's the servant king that is worthy of everything that comes for a Caesar, but he's willing to spend the time with the lowliest of people here on earth. You see throughout all of Jesus' life and ministry that he worked so hard to be associated with the lowly. The Bible tells us that he's the king that had no place to lay his head. When he calls people to follow him, he's calling them to leave the riches to follow him in poverty. This is the king. This is the Messiah. Is he majestic? Absolutely. Absolutely but look, he's meek. And the reason that we have to see through both of these lenses and then open our eyes is because Mark is trying to show us he's the servant king. That he doesn't wield his authority and power in order to make people bow their knee. Instead, he comes as the willing savior that's willing to lay down his life for his greatest enemies. Mark is saying this is a king like none other. You've never seen a king like Jesus before. So here's the question I think we should walk away with. How do I respond to a a king like Jesus that the world has never seen before? What, What does it look like for us to respond to a king like this? I think the only proper response is worship. He's worthy of your worship. Here's what worship entails. Worship is both adoration and submission. When you worship, you see the grandness, you see the beauty, you see the splendor of the one that is your worship is drawn towards, but you also have this humble, lowly reverence that brings a, a, an amount of submission towards you and the one that you worship. You see what I'm saying? You tracking with me? So Jesus, as the servant king, look, he's willing to endure treacherous loss for your gain. The king that is, majesty, that is majestic, that's worthy of it all has come in a meekness and a lowliness to lay down his life for people like you and me. There's a beauty and there's a splendor to him and it's worthy of our worship because of the depths that he's willing to be so low for you and me. And look, it's so imperative that we embrace this reality of worship of Jesus here in this life, that we bow to him now because the Bible tells us that he's coming again and that we need to embrace him now so that when he returns, he'll embrace us too. There's a pastor, Danny Aiken, that I think puts his, that compares the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus so well and I think this is something that we all need to wrestle with, all right? So read through this chart with me. I have a chart that should come up on the screen. So the first coming of Jesus, he came to die. The second, he comes to reign. The power that was anticipated of Jesus in his first coming is what's gonna be experienced in his second. He came on on a little donkey in the first, and the second, he will come on a warrior horse. He came as a humble servant, but he's coming again as an exalted king. He came first in weakness, but secondly, he's coming in power. He came first to serve. The next one, he's coming to judge. Jesus first came in love. Next, he's coming in wrath. Jesus first came with his deity veiled. The second coming, Jesus is coming with his deity fully revealed. His first coming, Jesus had 12 disciples. in his second coming, he's coming with the army of angels came with to bring peace at first second he comes to make war second first coming he came for a crown of thorns the second he receives a crown of royalty the first coming he's the suffering servant the second coming he's the king of kings and he's the lord of lords so look jesus is worthy of our worship and it's imperative that we embrace him as such because if we embrace jesus in his weakness he'll embrace us in ours too. If we submit to him in his agony and his tears, he'll also welcome us in ours as well. Look, he's coming again. And what Hebrews tells us is the that day that he comes is the day of judgment. And so we're gonna stand before the aura and the, majesty and the beauty and the power and the splendor of this King Jesus when he comes back again. And we're going to be the weak and we're going to be the frail and we're going to be the ones that can't stand up in the presence of this King Jesus. And so what Jesus is going to do is for us that have embraced him in his weakness in that day of judgment, when we see all of our wrongs before us, Jesus too will embrace embrace us if we embrace him in his meekness. And that's what we need to do. The proper response is a worship that you fully embrace Jesus, that you adore him and that you submit to him now so that when he comes again, he fully embraces you. Look, Jesus is a servant King who is in complete command Jesus is the servant king who accepts all the connotations with hopping on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem. Jesus is the servant king that celebrates in giving you deliverance because he went to the cross in your place. And the proper response for us is worship. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of all our adoring of all of our submitting and it's imperative that we embrace him in that position here today in this life before we take our last breath because Jesus is coming again and his second coming is going to look different and we want to be a part of it Jesus is a servant king is he your servant king Let's pray.